This is Fun Reading Radio, and today's guest speaker we have Ramsey Brown, co-founder at Boundless Mind, that raised $2.5 million and got acquired by Thrive Global. And this episode will mainly focus on first-time entrepreneurs raising money, first-time entrepreneurs raising money specifically in deep tech, and how to pitch yourselves to investors and how to push this, you know, uh, psychological, emotional side of business uh, in terms of startups. So, Ramsey, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Boundless Mind. Absolutely. Constantine, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, and hello to everybody out there listening. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so, my name is Ramsey Brown. I'm a technologist, an author, a neuroscientist, and a mediocre golfer every now and then. Um, my first company was uh, Dopamine Labs, which uh, was then became Boundless Mind, which uh, my business partner, Dr. Dalton Combs, and myself founded in 2015. Uh, my passion and work lies at the intersection of technology, human behavior, design, and quality of life. So I'm obsessed with the ideas and businesses that can be built that find a way to align the things that capital wants, the things that technology wants, but most importantly, the things that humanity wants. So as we viewed that building dopamine labs, one of the most important things that we saw as a, a challenge in the 21st century and forward was that in a world defined by having almost enough for everyone, enough kilocalories, kilowatts, and kilojoules, the fastest, some of the fastest growing threats to public health and flourishing were largely problems where our behavior and our habits were getting in the way of, of building a better society. And these were things that ranged from things as, as daily as um, being able to trust the veracity of our news and having good news consumption habits to the foods we ate, to how we treated our bodies and one another, to how we paid down our debt. Uh, so the company we built found a way to use what we knew about the underlying neuroscience of behavior change, how and why it is that people form new habits, and then make that knowledge able to be accessed and usable to the developers of smartphone apps to make their apps more engaging and retentive and able to help people change their behavior at their core by rewiring what it is that they wanted. Mm -hmm. So how exactly was this uh, application working? Yeah. So one of the things that Dr. Combs and I noticed was that academic neuroscience knew a ton about, or I should be a little uh, more caveated. We had really good models that could explain or model or predict why people did what they did in terms of decision-making and especially around weighing our options that we've previously been reinforced for. We had really good, as an industry, animal models of this. We had good human models. And we had an increasingly set of accurate computational models, um, neural networks that resembled at some architectural level what was happening in your head that ranged for uh, the decision-making parts that would handle things ranging from deciding what food you were going to eat to whether or not you would execute an addictive behavior. We had good models of those. And we recognized that technology companies, especially smartphone apps, were looking to solve this thing they called engagement. How do you get people to do what you need them to do inside your app, whether that's to push a button or add something to their cart or message a friend or adhere to their diet or pay back their loan? These behaviors that could be very quotidian or very uh, deep and one-off, all these apps were just trying to figure out how do you get people to do stuff? So we saw a way to bridge the gap there. We knew from neuroscience some of the underlying models of why people do what they do and how to change that. And we saw the need for apps to be able to consume that. So what we did is we 
built uh, a system that would be available as software as a service that any app could download and install and select particular behaviors that their users would perform. Add this to your cart, go for a jog, take a picture of the meal you just ate, make a small payment against your loan. Particular behaviors that then could be optimally reinforced. We could make people feel fantastic at the right moments and at the right pattern and frequency over time to cause their, to cause their brains to release dopamine and experience that little like, oh, that felt, that felt a little better than I expected. <laughs> dopamine labs. And it turns out that's not trivial. Getting that hard, getting that right is a, a mathematically hard problem to, to build an engine that would predict for everybody when and how should they receive that hit. Because what you're really trying to work backwards from is their understanding of surprise. You're modeling their notion of surprise and then figuring out when and how they may be surprised. We made that available to apps and they could in, uh, install it as an SDK, attach the actions to reinforcements they designed that were often things as, as simple as, you know, uh, you know, confetti raining down from the top of the screen. Something really small and said, yeah, that we were able to demonstrate with split testing that that had an outsized impact on how frequently people would come back and perform those behaviors. We were able to show that uh, across apps ranging from things that helped me take my medicine on time every day to things that helped me fight cyberbullying or drive safer without looking at my phone, we were able to actually change how frequently people did these things by adjusting some of the underlying mathematical parameters for when and how to reinforce them. That's what the literature said we should be able to do. That's what the models said should work. And that's what we found did actually work. That's the company we built and that's the value we provided to our customers. That sounds really, really complicated. So we'll get back to the topic of you know raising money for deep tech just a little bit later on. My first question is when you were a co-founder of uh, Balanced Minds uh, back in the days, Dopamine Labs, you were a first-time entrepreneur and you were actually still in university. How did that affect your fundraising process? Were investors like, hey, are you going to quit your uh, your education or are you going to stay in college? What's going to happen? How, how did it affect you? Yeah, absolutely. So that was actually one of the first things we realized is that this had really been a, a night times and weekends, like fun side project between two friends. Uh, that wasn't at all related to what we were doing academically. Dr. Combs and I worked on completely different parts of neuroscience at the time, but we had just cobbled together enough ant ant uh, anecdotal know-how from neuroscience to start building out these hypotheses. When we'd gotten some traction with that, just working on it nights and weekends, and some early alpha and beta customers were seeing value from it, and it kept working, and we kept getting in invited to come talk at interesting panels or meet interesting potential customers, uh, eventually we got looped in through Ted Reingold, uh, bless his heart, at um, what was then InVenture, now Tala, who said, hey, you got to talk to my, my friend uh, Matt Mazio at Lowercase Capital. I think you guys would really get along. Um, and that was the first investor we'd ever really talked to who looked at what we were building and said, uh, oh, I, I, I get this. I immediately see how this is going to be valuable. I think companies can use this. You know, you guys seem really smart, and it sounds like there's a really big opportunity here. Let's figure out something that could work. One of the things that we realized very quickly was we could not be both founders and students. So um, you know, Dr. Combs was much farther in his PhD. He went and had to complete that. Uh, but for about a year um, after uh, we got our first check from uh, lowercase capital and deep four capital, I had, to, um, I had to politely bow out of my PhD, take a master's degree instead, and, uh, and go run dopamine full time because it, it turned out uh, our financiers looked at this and saw a lot of potential 
but really the need to focus. And that's completely reasonable. If you, if you only have so many hours in the day and what you're doing is not related to what you've been doing academically, you know, there's some instances where I've heard of people who are like, hey, you know, I worked at the tech transfer office. It turns out my PhD is monetizable. We're working on some IP arrangement. That wasn't the case. This was something completely different. Um, and they said, like, look, you, you need, it is completely reasonable of anyone who gets involved financially to expect you to completely focus on this. And we agreed. We looked at that and said, yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. Um, and since uh, I was a little farther away from the finish line, I, I bowed out and uh, ran dopamine while Dr. Combs finished out his PhD and then came and joined me. Got it. So uh, I see that my next question was about uh, how you reached out to the first investors, but uh, it seems like you got just a lot of inbound asking you to participate in all those events and you found all those connections there, right? Yeah, and, and that's what we, we found was so fantastic, uh, is the, the story of, of two people just completely bootstrapping a thing that they think the world needs is, even if you're doing this in the nights and weekends ways, if you can narrow down at the the one thing that is absolutely small enough and shabby enough, but that still creates value for your potential customers, get out there, put them down, beg them to try it, give, <laughs> them for, give it to them for free, set up KPIs, and if they can't pay you for it because they're also small, but they like it and they like you and they trust you and they need it, continue to give it away and just ask to meet someone, ask who they can connect you to and grind on that and grind on that and grind on that. And by no means am I going to take the trap of this very like post hoc, well, here's what worked in success for me. So it'll work for you too. Because <laughs> that's garbage. That's garbage. And founders do it all the time. And it's garbage. It's predominantly luck. We got lucky that as mm -hmm. we went through that process, we just kept saying yes to meeting people and letting them try it and letting them try it, letting them try it. And we were five free full-blown pilots deep when someone looked at this and said you know I, I bet our investors would like to take a look at this mm -hmm. so to, to totally avoid the like well that's why success works trap um <laughs> what, what we may find is that how lucky we end up getting may be proportional to how often we say yeah sure i can make this easy for you mm -hmm. all i ask in return is help me continue to get this in front of people Right, it was one of the first things that we we got right was just do it for free, get it in front of people. Someone at some point is going to see enough value in this that they'll say, "I've got someone you should probably meet because they might be able to help you do this a little more seriously." Exactly, exactly. That's a perfect advice. And my next question is going to be, how do you put yourselves out there? So to receive those invitations to the events, you have to have some sort of online presence or you having some sort of a blog or a YouTube channel or something that exposed yourselves to those uh, you know, invitations? We didn't, we actually hunted. So we sat there and we combed through the app store and we combed through TechCrunch and we made a bottoms up short list of apps that we thought it might be great to work with. And we hounded them hunted them down, we cold emailed, we reached out on LinkedIn, we called people. And we were too, like, my business partner was a, a computational economist and I was an anatomist, <laughs> not salespeople. <laughs> I remember doing our first call with the first oh. person who signed a pilot with us and I had to take two shots of whiskey beforehand. <laughs> 
I was petrified about the idea of asking someone who I thought was so much more farther along than us and so big because they had a landing page that looked slick. And it turns out they had no money and they were bootstrapping into the spare time too. That's what you have to do at the beginning. I wish you could say like, oh yeah, man, we growth hacked it. There's no such thing. You have to sometimes just do hard stuff that sucks. And that's what we did. We just ground against it. Um, I think there's a, a big trap that a lot of people get in because we want to, we want something from nothing. And I think a, a lot of what we otherwise would consider growth hacking is absolute, like, um, it worked once, therefore this is how it works, but it's kind of garbage. There's really no substitute for, like, really hard, honest work. And that's what we put yeah. We just, we scratched and clawed at the dirt until we bled, until we got a few people to say yes, to trust us enough to let us plug in this this otherwise what could have been dangerous thing inside their app because it, it, it made the execution of their app dependent on our servers because it was, a, it was a blocking synchronous process. And again, to be clear, he was an economist, I was an anatomist. There was no one who was the VP of backend engineering. We just had to left our way through it and build science. Oh my God. Yeah, we had no idea what we were doing in any aspect of <laughs> science. science. We knew we were good at learning and we knew we were good at talking and we knew that would probably be enough to get us pretty far. And it did. Yeah. What we were able to do really quickly was learn, was learn back in engineering, was learn how to pitch our product properly, was learn how to talk to investors. Um, and, and I love that because I going to USC as an undergrad, I met a lot of kids who were in the business school and USC's business school has this huge, uh, at least at the time, this very like holier than thou while well, we're in the business school. It's like, you don't know anything, <laughs> any practical skills, not to knock anyone with the business school. Um, but then I'd meet applied scientists or, or artists or engineers or musicians who just grinded at it and who learned how to do all those other steps. And I'm not saying by any means any of us could, for example, prepare a financial statement or like an S1 filing, but there is a thing to being very good at anatomy and economics and science and reward prediction error modeling, and then learning how to talk to customers, learning how to conduct user research, learning how to speak with investors, learning how to tell your story. It is a doable thing. It is an exciting thing. At the end of the day, you are not just good at the things of being a founder, you're also still a very deeply technical person. Right, and just uh, FYI for people who heard S1 and wanted to Google it, uh, probably it's not the right thing for you right now because it's a filing for uh, people who are preparing to go to for an IPO. So probably you're not <laughs> at the right level <laughs> yet. But I have a question about what you just recently said, which is you, none of your, uh, none of the co-founders were technical people and you still had some serious uh, technology behind the app. So how did you manage to do that? So did you actually hire someone? Did you find a freelancer to do it part-time? Did you outsource it? What happened there? Very, very sweaty, very, very fast. Uh, so at the beginning, I knew enough Python for some of the things I'd worked on previously. And Dr. Combs knew a lot of the underlying applied philosophy of reward prediction error learning and like how the product should work you know, on a whiteboard. And then we sat there and when we identified that the core, the core thing we ought to be building was this API system, uh, we sat and said, well, that, that can't be that hard. We're both pretty good at computers. I bet we can figure that out. And before that, we thought we'd bring in someone technical. 
we thought very early on it's fine we would just be this like i'm in the ideas guy we're the ideas it's like shut up dude <laughs> get busy get dirty and i sat there and I, I rolled up my sleeves and got really sweaty on nights and weekends learning php and then node.js and then mongo and all these these full stack technologies we'd need to build our first prototype but it was enough all it had to be was enough that i had hey here's an endpoint here's documentation here's what your expected call response should be here's the medium latency time like oh okay that sounds like the things i need great customers would trust us for that so we ourselves became technical really quickly what we found was that was enough to actually get us pretty far that got us through maybe the first year or two working at this. Um, what we identified after fundraising was that a lot of the early gains that we'd had for really great back of napkin assumptions and, and early models we'd worked on, we came to the point where we said, okay, we actually need people who are much more specialized than us in various fields. Mm -hmm. And through that journey, we found old students of ours who followed us home after we gave a guest lecture at their one of their upper div classes who walked back with us to the laboratory, continuing to ask good questions. We found other friends of ours from the PhD program. Um, we found people who, when through our path, uh, Hacker News had a field day with us for a few times, calling us fascists and telling us that we were building Brave New World and ugly mind control technology. Nice. <laughs> yeah, after, after I spent an evening after one too many course Lights um, responding to people on Hacker News, someone who saw the comment thread reached out and said, I've been watching the whole conversation. I'm in Los Angeles. I do advanced DevOps work. I'm in. Okay. So we found people who believe. We found people who, we found people who were deeply technical, who believed in us as people, and who believed in this mission that there was a thing that could be built that would engineer human behavior and that could be used towards human flourishing. Right, right. That's that's a wonderful epic story. I love where this is going. So I have a question about fundraising in terms of when did you decide that you know it's time for us to raise some money yeah. uh, we can't bootstrap anymore when was that period of time when was uh, that breaking point basically we you know it's funny about a, a week or two prior to that point i had sat down with my with my business partner and said man we've been we've been slaving at this night weekend for a long time we've got a few really cool case studies we've met a lot of really interesting people but like where is this going because we're 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 in school, right? And I don't I don't know how to think about that balance between the two because this is both these things deserve attention, um, and and I think we got actually pretty close to the point of saying like this was a fun project and a fun experiment, but we really need to focus. Um, when we got that first introduction, when our first customer said, "Hey man, I've got someone I need you to meet," and that ended up being uh, Matt Mazio at Lowercase Capital, um, who who liked us, who liked the mission, who saw the vision. Um, and who was able to help us get off the ground and uh, invent, uh, introduced us to a few of the people he knew and that he respected uh, in the venture capital community. Um, and then with him and, and Deep Fork Capital and Social Starts uh, helped us get off the ground with our, with our first pre-seed check. But we were, we were very close to being at that, that no revenue, no mild traction bootstrap founders place and then saying, this isn't for us. We got very close to that. Mm -hmm that's that's really interesting and you know that's exactly the point where we're talking about luck so it's great it's great that you didn't quit no uh congrats on that and let's talk about the acquisition so how did this happen you got acquired by right global did you actually prepare for the acquisition or did you just get an inbound from them uh saying like hey hey guys uh we want to buy you uh 
uh, no, it was, um, and I, I should caveat that I, I had left the company prior to, yeah, about six months prior to the acquisition, um, but we, we met Thrive Global years prior. So we found ourselves um, in maybe, I want to say like 2017, maybe late 2016, um, over over uh, you know a couple pints of beer, the whole company out at a, a local great sausage place in Venice Beach that we all love going to, uh, talking about what one would build hypothetically to do the exact opposite of what our company does. So our core product was about changing people's behavior to make them do things more often. Dr. Combs posited, what would you do to get people to do things less often? How do you induce friction in digital experiences without getting someone to just full-blown quit or delete the app? Um, and we thought that was really interesting because we were beginning to see that a lot of people were becoming really dissatisfied with how social media in particular was impacting their mental health. They were feeling like, I don't, you know, I keep using Facebook, but I don't like Facebook. Mm -hmm. And we thought back to the work of uh, Dr. Kent Barrage and others in neuroscience and psychology around the distinction between wanting and liking. Uh, and one of the analogies that was classically made, I believe by Dr. B.F. Skinner was that um, no one who finds themselves with a deep gambling addiction likes the behavior of gambling. They just have a very strong wanting for it. Our wanting is about the things that we have been reinforced for and therefore seek. Wanting is our seeking. Liking is our subjective pleasure of the experience as it happens. So the things that we want, we once liked very much. And our liking may subside. It almost always does, such as the suffering of the human condition. But our wanting remains very strong. So people had a, this very strong drive to consume Facebook, but it was no longer providing them any joy whatsoever. But there was something there. So we started looking at, okay, what's inside tech addiction? Well, it's, it's these, these similar types of reinforcement pathways that we were engineering for good that were getting used towards things that weren't making people happy. So we built the, an app that would help people unhook from those vicious cycles. And this app was called Space because what, we, what dawned on us is that people didn't actually want to break up with Facebook. They just wanted some space. They just wanted some breathing room. Mm -hmm. the, the metaphor was apt for the cultural moment. And space would allow users to select an addictive app on their phone and create a fake icon for it. And if you clicked that fake icon, you were forced to perform a breathing exercise that lasted between six and 15 seconds, depending on how frequently you've pushed the button recently. If you've been very responsible and haven't used Facebook that much, the breathing delay is very short. If you have been opening Facebook constantly, the breathing delay is actually quite long every time. And once you completed the breathing exercise, it would cartwheel you into the app. It would, it would take you to Facebook, actually. So in this sense, we built a, a dynamic system that would introduce a responsive quantity of friction to a behavior that you wanted to change before letting you do the actual behavior. That app was called Space. We put it out on the App Store, and Apple rejected it. And they rejected it aggressively. <laughs> when I got on the phone with Apple to understand what was going on, uh -huh. what the Apple representative told me was that any app that discouraged people from using their phone was unacceptable for distribution. Of course. <laughs> uh, long story short, uh, I got exceptionally upset at that, went out and bought a case of Red Bull, 
and pulled a few all-nighters in a row to rebuild the app that was an iOS app previously from scratch as a web app because we recognized that we could probably go around the walled garden of iOS. We could just make a web app and the web app would be equipped to have someone sign up, walk them through onboarding, take payment, um, or try a free trial, and then create these app icons and manage all of that itself. You know, 72 frantic hours later, we have something ready for distribution. We get it out the door. Uh, lowercase capital was running lowercase alpha at the time, a, a text-based mailing list. We get it out to people, put it on um, product hunt, it's product of the day, goes over really well. Nice. We, don't think, we don't think any of this, anything of this for a little while. It's just a fun project because it's not our core business. It's the opposite of our core business. Right. We do this for a little while, and I get hit up one day in an email from the executive producer of 60 Minutes that he had just been at Davos, and I just met a guy named Tristan Harris who had previously been um, an ethicist at Google who was now trying to work on beating tech addiction with his organization, Time Well Spent, uh, which eventually became the Center for Humane Technology. Um, and they were trying to pull together a 60 Minutes episode about how technology is rewiring our brain. One thing led to another, and next thing I know, I'm uh, talking to Anderson Cooper in our shabby startup garage in Venice Beach about why Facebook's trying to rewire you to consume more Facebook. The next day after this lands, we get a phone call from Apple saying, I believe there's been some mistake because we were very clear on 60 Minutes that Apple would not let us help people become unaddicted to their phone. Mm -hmm. Next day, Apple reverses their decision, of course. And in, <laughs> yeah, yeah, surprise, surprise. And in this process, we get introduced to Ariana Huffington, who's running Thrive Global, who has been an advocate for mental health, but specifically mental health as it relates to our technology. So we had a fantastic time getting to know Ariana and her team um, through this process. And it, it really was space, this product designed to help people take control of the relationship with their phone that I think the Thrive team really resonated with and, and they really aligned on. Um, and so over the years, we actually built a great friendship between the two companies. We would um, we'd talk every few months about how things were going in the behavioral health and wellness technology space, what they were seeing and working on, what we were seeing and working on, how we might be able to collaborate. Um, and we kept up that relationship and nurtured that relationship for years. Um, it really only came to be that uh, in, I believe it was early, no, mid 20, no, yeah, probably early 2019 um, that it came to pass that Thrive looked at what we were building and, and the team we had amassed and said, look, you know, this this looks like exactly the kind of thing that we are trying to uh, to do more of in our brand. Um, and it was it was really only that we had, through this very serendipitous pathway, nurtured this fantastic relationship between the two organizations um, that we were able to to really easy, more easily than I think um, we would have expected, uh, be able to facilitate that transition. Nice. That's that's a great story. And we're coming up to the last two topics of today's episode. First one being successful founders as a source of capital and advice. Do you do any advisory roles or do you do any angel investing right now? Uh, I do not yet do any angel investing, but I do do a reasonable amount of advising. Um, I think that there is a thing like being a first time founder. It is there, there's this this not to do the thing that everyone likes to do in tech where you have to say an Elon Musk quote or, or sit there and take your turn, but I'll, I'll, I'll sit here and take my turn. Um, he once described, and I might botch the exact quote, but he once described building a company as kind of like chewing glass. Like, 
it's kind of it's kind of terrible at times. Um, but it's probably more accurately like chewing heroin soaked glass because it, it occasionally feels absolutely fantastic and no one should go do heroin. <laughs> but there is but there is something like not not broken inside founders, but something that's itching that they want to go scratch with their company. Otherwise, they just go work at someone else's company. Like the, the drive to go take on an insane amount of risk to almost constantly get rejected, to almost constantly have things not work. Mm -hmm. Still do it. You still keep showing up. There's something you're scratching with that. And, you know, it's a good way to scratch that itch for sure. Um, but I love working with first time founders because having just freshly been one myself, it gives me a chance to talk to myself in a time machine and say, hey, I know you have a high degree of certainty about this decision you're about to make, but I'm you in a time machine, and I promise you that's almost going to work. If you change this one thing about it instead, because you're seeing most of it correctly, but you change this one thing, it's definitely going to work. So it's this really great way to, to nurture the community through the next cycle of people who are trying this for the first time. Absolutely. And that's great to hear that you're doing advisory roles. And the last thing for today is a call to action. What's that one thing that you want the listeners to do as soon as this episode is over? If you're a first time founder and you're building in the current, uh, I don't even know how, like how many caveats to throw in it, just the current climate, we'll call it where in 2020, we've watched a lot of assumptions that we had about the structure of doing almost anything at the tail end of a bull run completely change. And now we're looking at massive unemployment. Now we're looking at a lot of economic fragility. We are looking at ecological challenges. We are looking at now finally addressing longstanding um, racial and subjugation challenges. There's a lot of things that we're very different about being a founder four or five years ago for the first time than it is today. There's a lot of challenges for anyone out there trying to build their first thing or get anyone to pay attention to their first thing. My call to action would be this. If you are out there right now trying to build something and you were trying to get it in the hands of people, give it away. Give it away right now. Largely people are in a complete purchasing freeze. A lot of organizations I've spoken with recently aren't buying anything, especially anything new. Mm -hmm. building something new and you need to find out whether or not the new thing you built is good you are starting to scratch at product market fit or how you figure out what values latently this thing creates that you might be able to capture de-emphasize the capture part right now just get people to use it get people to use it and understand how in times of plenty they might have paid for this and then work backwards to say okay now in times of scarcity what sort of arrangement can be made but, but continue to fight for that validation and understand right now that it is probably more important that you better understand whether or not anyone actually wants what you have than immediately trying to monetize it. Great, great advice. I will uh, wrap it up here because I don't think there is anything else to add. So thanks a lot, Ramsey, for coming up and for sharing your experience. That was definitely a fun episode. Really enjoyed doing this. Hey, thanks, Constantine. It was a pleasure to join you.